this is Jack, and you're listening to Good For Now. If you want to learn more, listen to our back catalog, or subscribe, visit us at gfnpodcast.com. Again, that's gfnpodcast.com. The restaurant industry has suffered devastating consequences from the COVID-19 pandemic and its response, from the abrupt closures to inconsistent federal public health guidelines. This industry is a unique victim of the pandemic in that its inherent vulnerabilities before COVID make it increasingly difficult to recover from this pandemic, potentially forever changing the American Main Street landscape and our economy. With little to no financial assistance to date, the largest impact has been felt by your local independent restaurant owners and the estimated 11 million people the industry employs. Prior to COVID, David Machado owned five highly regarded restaurants in Portland, Oregon. Back in May, David announced he would be permanently closing all five restaurants because he didn't see a pathway forward. With me today to discuss this and what the industry could look like without immediate relief is chef and restaurateur David Machado. David, thank you for being here. Jack, thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity speak about what's happened to our industry. Yeah, there's a lot to there's a lot to go over for sure. I don't feel like this industry has gotten enough attention given what's already happened and as I noted in the introduction, what the potential consequences are going to be uh, or could be. So I wanted to talk to you about that. I wanted to talk to you about the future of the restaurant industry and what it could look like without immediate relief. But first, can you give us a little background on you and your company before the pandemic hit? Uh, for me, I, I got started in the restaurant business in San Francisco in the early 1980s. So right present when everything was changing with California cuisine and restaurants were really becoming a destination, a whole night out, uh, kind of a, a, a be all end all of an evening. And uh, so it's, I've been in it about 40 years and moved to Portland in 1991, uh, was working for a Kimpton group out of San Francisco, opened up their first restaurant hotel in Portland called Pazzo at the Vintage Plaza and uh, worked for a number of years for Kimpton and then for the Heathman group, uh, opening restaurants all, all over town, really. Uh, in 2003, I left to go on my own and opened up Laurel Kitchen on the east side on Division Street. Uh, some people consider it the, the seminal uh, business on that street. It was the first really to attract a large following from the west side of Portland. Uh, in 2005, I opened up Vindaloo uh, on Clinton, only a few blocks away really. And I had those two restaurants for almost a decade. Uh, since I had started in the hotel business, I was approached to start to consider starting a restaurant in a downtown hotel in 2008, and that would end up being Hotel Modera, and I opened up Nel Centro. And about every three or four years after that, we just seemed to get restless and want to create something new, do something new. We never did the same concept, never did the same menu, <laughs> and opened up in several other hotels in the Pearl and on the east side. Um, and so had a really uh, strong business. All the businesses were doing really well. Uh, they were diversified because they had some banquets, they had some bar business, some uh, dining room business, um, some cafe business. I had a bakery also. 
And uh, so it was kind of a diversified portfolio. It was in all the areas of, of, of the four quadrants of Portland. So it was an equal opportunity employer. Uh, we had about 170 employees at the peak and um, had a strong group of chefs and managers that I'd been with for years. A lot of the line cooks I had been with for up to 15, 20 years. So uh, never had any investors, never had... Uh, any uh, desire to get really big or to be a corporation or anything like that was only owned by my wife and I. We uh-huh. did it the old-fashioned American way. We used SBA money, our home value, and some cash that we saved. That's so we're amazing. Yeah. So when the, we we grew to a substantial size, because, but we were very conservative and very careful about each deal, whether we should take it or not, whether it was a good opportunity or a good location, or we had a good idea that we thought was going to. Uh, take off and be popular. So that was the lead up uh, to the to the announcement uh, of closure in the state of Oregon. Um, I started following the the pandemic in uh, mid January. I started reading about it. Um, I was uh, a bit of a, a butt of humor around work, and I also at the gym I I went to for years. Uh, people would say, "Go talk to that guy. He likes to talk about this thing, the pandemic." out of yeah. china <laughs> so i was following it i had read the the, the book on uh the pandemic in 1918 there's a couple of books published and i read them both and so i was always fascinated by how a single germ or microbe could upset the balance of society mm-hmm. so it kind of stuck with me and then it became real yeah we're none of us are immune to it um no were you this might be a side note but in in either of those books i don't know if they covered this but were you at all surprised that the advice that was given back in 1918 to uh personally protect you and others is exactly the same as it is today wear a mask Wash yes, your hands quite, in social distance. Amazing. Nothing, <laughs> nothing has changed. Yeah. Yes, outdoor tents and and co- I mean it's a, quite amazing that in one hundred years we're relying on the same fundamental reaction. Yeah, yeah, it's it, it really fascinating. is. Yeah. So you said a uh, hundred and seventy employees at it, at its peak, and when did you? You don't have to have an exact date, but when do you recall? hearing about the the pandemic being a global emergency and and mm-hmm. Oregon shutting down. Oh, I know the dates. They're, they'll they'll be burned in my mind forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um first uh first official signal came about March 12th and uh that was in the form of uh uh you know groups under groups over 250 um you know essentially the the public assembly uh issue that came out but we knew uh, so on that date, I started to write, rewrite the menus at every restaurant. I started to uh, decide which, uh, you know, most restaurants I had three managers and three chefs, which who was hired last, who who was the least experienced or whatever. Started to prioritize what those uh, single key people layoffs might be, and also uh, downsizing the menu. I was going to order less food. I we stopped buying wine. We stopped buying alcohol. Uh, so that was on the 12th. Every con- contingency plan I wrote for the next seven days was obsolete within 24 hours. There was yeah. nothing that I did that week that worked. There was nothing we did with the banquets, with the 
private dining with people on the phone, everything we, the communications with the employees, the notices we posted, the meetings, uh, nothing uh, was uh, prompt and expedient enough to have any effect at all. It was as if time was moving so fast that I couldn't catch up. And I think this was a this is a fairly universal experience in the restaurant business that week. No matter what state you eventually got this news, you felt uh, restaurant people are a unique breed. We feel we have uh, excessive control over our environment, <laughs> and we think that we can, we think we can really get ahead of things. And so uh, uh, that week was one of the worst weeks I could ever remember because absolutely everything failed that we thought about. On the seventeenth, we got the announcement that essentially. Uh, it was over. We would have to close. Uh, the the pandemic was judged to be of severity that the contagion might, uh, you know, jeopardize our very safety as as a society. Portland, downtown Portland, the whole the whole greater uh, state of Oregon. So um, restaurateurs are really good. Chefs are really good at uh, planning on how to close, how to butcher and reduced uh, stocks and freeze soups and mm-hmm. clean the walk-in. We, we did all of that. We consoled ourselves for several weeks that uh, by closing properly, by sanitizing, by deep cleaning, fixing machines and getting everything really tight, that we would be well poised to reopen. And I remember the last day in the parking lot waving to the chefs and managers, I see on the other side, looking at 30 days, guys. It's going to be cool. Go apply for unemployment. Like go today, and uh, we'll all see each other back here in 30 days. And that was wrong too. And uh, so, yeah, that's that. That was the the first those pivotal weeks uh, of finding out, reacting, writing a plan, and then trying to do the busy work that lets us console ourselves that we're possibly going to not be hurt too bad, but. Uh, so f- f- go a little bit further, a couple of weeks later, uh, my operations manager, we've been working together for 26 years. Uh, he came to me and said, I've run the numbers. I've, I've looked at some of the guidelines that we can expect when we reopen and about social distancing and hours of operation and et cetera, et cetera. And uh, the number of shifts we would have, the section size we would be able to offer waiters the number of cooks it would take to do it. And frankly, I don't see a path back. I'll, I'll share what I've been, uh, he'd been in the dining room measuring tables and square footage. He said, I really, and I said, my immediate reaction was, that's not going to happen. We're not that kind of company. I'm not that kind of uh, owner or chef. You're not that kind of guy. We are super competitive and we will, we will uh, figure it out and we will reopen and we will go back in business. And that didn't happen either. <laughs> yeah, and and part of the part of the the problem, it, I might be incorrect on this, but mm. a lot of the, if not all of your your restaurants were were in hotels. So no matter what you did to change, and let's be clear, all of those contingency plans that you were talking about is essentially changing your business model. Yes. Very quickly. We're not talking yes. about minor details, changing a menu or the layout. You're talking about completely redoing your business model for five restaurants. And without travel, without visitors to hotels, mm-hmm. without events going on around town, I imagine mm-hmm. 
uh, I imagine it just there was no pathway forward without any of that feeding into your restaurants. That's absolutely uh, precisely correct. Uh, no travelers, no hotel guests, no conventioners, no concert goers. I mean, we could go on and on and on. So no supply, really. No, no customers, no, no, no takers, no buyers. Uh, a lot of the industry at that time uh, split into two camps, uh, packaging food for pickup, for to-go, for del- or for delivery service, and packaging raw materials, in other words, uh, in an effort to keep the suppliers going, the little guys on the chain, uh, the farmers, the, the meat cutters, the, the fish fillets, uh, those products were kicked along in a kind of an enhanced value box. And that was a, a model that uh, still in play. Uh, both models uh, we found in the first 30 days, uh, probably at least half the restaurants dropped out from some of those models. They were high cost. They were low return. And uh, they really weren't the core business that the restaurant had been doing all along. Right. Really tough if you're a sit-down dining room with a, uh, a waiter and a manager and bartenders and to really change to takeout or to go. Really mm-hmm. a different business. And I think a lot of people quickly realized, yeah, I don't really know this business. and I don't know the margins, but I'm starting to see it's not working. Yeah. So that's that was the kind of the final phase where people decided, well, maybe... So then everybody thought, well, sit tight. And, and what does tight mean? We don't really know. There were, everybody kicked it around. It was a month. It was 90 days. It was sometime in the summer. It was when kids go back to school. It was everything. Everybody had uh, a way of looking at it. But, uh, it, you know, my operations manager, Darren, like I said, we, we, we plotted it out. And he said, we need to close. We need to get out. We need to stop. Anything that we do going forward, by the time we're done, we're going to be penniless. We're going to lose, and we're going to spend every bit of money that we have. And I was stunned at that. I, I was stunned at the prospect. Of course, what was kicking around at that time was the PPP money, the the, the disaster loans. There's a lot of there's a lot of stuff that was. Uh, sparkling boy, you could get three hundred grand, five hundred grand. You could, you could really. But you know, those programs were so ill suited to the restaurant business. They were almost uh, written by uh, people who really were lacking in intelligence and planning because the very rules of it kind of were against what we could do. We could never hire those people back in the short period of time that it was required, right. and therefore most of us started to get really anxious about paying it back and possibly being pursued by the IRS or pursued by the SBA as, as in default, as deadbeats, as, uh, as imposters, so mm-hmm. to speak. And so people started talking to each other, hey, you're going to apply? I don't know. I'm thinking about, or hey, I applied and I even got it, but I'm sending it back. I'm not going to spend it. I'm afraid to spend it. So there was so much disinformation and misinformation and fear that I think that that um, jolt of money, especially at the level of the owner operator, I'm not talking about the chains who who came in and, and cashed big checks, but uh, at the street level, the people that were doing the work, uh, everybody was was terrified that they were going to make a mistake. Yeah, yeah, and and I think that's a really important point here because I said at the at the top that the impact is or the burden is largely felt by. Uh, your local restaurants, not the big chains necessarily, 
Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. They have access to greater loans, uh, payroll protection uh, loans, grants, uh, other for, uh, federal assistance. Even before COVID hit, they have access mm -hmm. to that, where small restaurant uh, owners do not have access to a lot of that. Uh, where banks are not going to cut them uh, large checks to keep payroll going because they're a small business. Um, and then PPP was introduced, as you said, there were certain restrictions in there that made it prohibitive for, for you to even uh, consider taking it because the restrictions on hiring employees back meant that even if you did that, you still couldn't open your business. You were just paying your employees um, to stay at home when they could be receiving unemployment. And at the end of the day, you're still losing all of the money to, to keep your business open, essentially, it, it, even though it's closed. It was, yes, it was a Kafkaesque bargain. <laughs> we thought, we'll bring them in, we'll clean, we'll, we'll redecorate, we'll retrain, and then say, okay, and after those two or three weeks are gone, well, what are we going to do for the next five or six weeks? Right. Because it really was not a way to uh, legally and ethically uh, use that money. Yep. Couldn't figure out how to do it. So that that passed. And, and you know, going back, uh, lines of credit are virtually unknown in the restaurant business. Banks give lines of credit for all kinds of businesses, manufacturing business, high-tech businesses, betting on accounts receivable, betting on orders that have already been manufactured. We just don't, we just don't have that. Uh, never did. Yeah. Probably never will. Uh, we never had that opportunity. So um uh, no money out there, and the thought, uh, and I should add another really uh, um, uh, fear, uh, something that struck fear into us at the time. What if we did everything right? What if we actually uh, reopened, we had a plan at work, we got going, we actually could break even, and et cetera, et cetera. But what if something happened in the fall? What if like in 1918, the virus came back? What if we closed again? Could we ever overcome that second closing? And that we didn't even have to think about it. It was absolutely not. The second closing, not only did it spell the end of the businesses, but it's probably spelled the end of, in my case, my own savings, my own retirement, my own real estate that I lived in. It spelled the end of everything. And so therefore, that that other specter that loomed there out at some unknown point was was causing uh, us incredible distress. Yeah. And, and a lot of people don't realize that on a good day in the restaurant industry, it is fucking hell sometimes. Uh, it is not an easy industry for people to be quote unquote successful in where the national uh, profit margin for a successful restaurant uh, a full service restaurant is typically uh, between like three and 5%. If, mm -hmm. if you're correct. doing 10%, you are incredibly lucky. Whereas a lot of other industries, be it uh, retail, brick and mortar retail, or online retail, uh, manufacturing, shipping, receiving, delivering, logistics, their profit margins are usually anywhere between let's say 25% and sometimes 50 or 60% depending on the industry. The restaurant industry is unique in that way uh, where the profit margins are so narrow that it almost makes it prohibitive to even start the business to begin with. 
you have to do everything right in order to succeed, especially when you're a small business uh, like like yourself. And here's where you and I are are, are somewhat connected in this in this experience. the The story that you told before is is almost universal for for everybody in the industry, at least here in Portland. Um, based on the timing, but at least that thought process was going through the minds of almost everybody in that industry. And you and I are connected in the sense that across the street from one of your restaurants is the Moda Center. Yes. With the basketball team, uh, concerts, hockey. Laser, and it's, it's bread and butter. It's what we need. Without it, we're not anything. And I, yeah, I was I was working for a company who was contracted by the Portland Trailblazers for food and beverage services in the arena. So we provided uh, food and beverage for all of the basketball games, all of the hockey games, all of the concerts, any other event that came in to the Moda Center. Uh, we were providing that food and beverage service too, and a lot of those visitors to the arena would go to your restaurant beforehand. Absolutely. It was, um, it was the hottest spot before the game or a concert. And I, I remember it was the same, it was the same night. Um, I think it was the, the 12th. There was a concert. Um, it was tool. It was, you're right. It was tool. It was tool. <laughs> and, <laughs> and we, I was aware that this was going on, um, in, in the background. We, I, I was very aware of it. Uh, and, and, pretty terrified that that something was was coming and we got a call into the office um and our director of operations who is an incredible guy uh was we all sat around the table and we tried to figure out what what the what was going on uh how to proceed and we had the same exact conversation as as you just laid out you get in the kitchen you start chopping and dicing and freezing, reducing, yep. turn things into uh, into soups. We need to try and return all of our our uh, liquor and and beer. Yep. Uh, try and get refunds on that. We need to do a sweep of the building and make sure everything is clean and sanitized. Um, and then we'll reconvene and figure out how we can proceed. Um, with group sales events and other yes. kinds of events because we didn't know yet at that point what the scope of this this was um but i think a, a lot of us a lot of us knew uh that this was this was the beginning of of the end and i think it was probably on the same night that i found out uh that our hourly employees were were all uh laid off and uh, they were gonna. The company was gonna retain all of the managers uh, for as long as they could. They did. The company did everything that they possibly could uh, to keep this thing going. And it was the same. It was the same thing. Well, let's plan and prepare for this. In three yes. weeks, we might be back. In four weeks, yes. we might be back. So it was planning and, and logistics for a variety of different business models that never came to fruition. And to put a, a pin in this it's it makes it incredibly difficult if not impossible for your business to succeed when the arena is completely empty 365 days out of the year and there's very little chance that that arena is going to see any visitors anytime soon 
and and the convention center too. And uh, you know, the canary in the mine those two weeks for us was what you just alluded to it was the discussion with the salespeople over the private dining contracts. There was a steady stream of incoming calls canceling the events mm-hmm. or moving the events, and it's like. Oh, that that is that is getting more uh, robust and more robust day by now. Nothing has legally come out to say that there's a, there's a, an effective closure. It's just that clients are anxious and they begin to make the phone calls. Yep, and that's and that really never stops. When did you make the the final decision, and how did you inform your your employees? Uh, it ended up probably being. Um, a month out from the actual closure closure because um i was still battling that we could do it uh i wrote a each individual restaurant wrote a a long letter uh and emailed it to everybody that was the only way we could get through each of the general managers and chefs also did a call down on all their people and um we gave them information on how to file unemployment how to uh, deal with health insurance. That's another uh, another huge byproduct of this. Uh, mm-hmm. We were a restaurant company that that had really generous benefits on vacation, health insurance, and uh, retirement. And uh, when you don't, what you find out when you don't have a company in uh, in, in the capitalist uh, system that we use in America, you don't actually have those benefits. Those plans become defunct right away they cease to exist Mm -hmm. so it was a mad dash to let people know that the things that we had been doing together for years and it had really grown in value were now uh, going to be taken apart and that and i had no idea that would happen because that was one of the i kept the managers on for another two months some of them three months and i kept health insurance going on even longer it's the last thing i could do i still had some money left in the checkbooks and I kept paying the health premiums because I thought this thing is so bad. What could be the worst thing? Oh, I could have a medical emergency and have no insurance. Yep. So we we did everything as well as we could. We paid our vendors. We paid our taxes. We paid all our insurance. We did, we did everything that we could to do. I had been in the restaurant business, like I mentioned, a long time, and uh, I was courted by by all of these hotels to to take up space in their in their hotel and when we did that uh i was uh had legal advice to not do um recourse leases so i was one of the since i'm one of the older chef owners in town i didn't have to sign that terrible lease that gives a personal guarantee where then the landlord begins to chase and uh so I was in a situation where I could actually affect a closure that was uh, legal and ethical and, and essentially clean. Um, that issue today of rent remains for everyone. We're in August. It still remains. It's unresolved. Nobody's paid rent since March. Uh, the state of Oregon has a rent, a commercial rent abatement uh, process that's in uh, it's in play, I think, until September 4th, if I remember right, from the governor's uh, executive order. So we still have a, a kind of our first day of reckoning within the industry should come in the month of September. Yeah. And that's what I, wa- I wanted to get to because this is just a, a brief rundown of 
the some statistics that are important that show how devastating this could be and i think you just uh you just you know set it up for me mm-hmm. but the industries that are most affected by the response to covid-19 employ a combined almost 40 million us workers the general merchandise stores employ about 2.8 million personal and laundry services employ about 2.6 million amusement parks gambling and recreation employ about 2.2 million food and beverage in this country employs about 11 million out of the top 10 food and beverage employs the most employees out of the the list of vulnerable uh, industries and you are you're talking about the the abatement which is going to come up in in September uh, that is going to be the first reckoning as you said uh, for for owners and this could be the start of something pretty severe and consequential that has a lasting impact on not just the restaurant but all of the things that feed into the restaurant all the commercial businesses the farmers uh who who grow our food the processing facilities who create and package the food the truck drivers who deliver the food the trucking companies um and the 11 million restaurant workers who are basically hanging out to dry there's mm-hmm. there's really no relief especially with the federal assistance the additional federal assistance unemployment assistance uh, dropping off um this is we're about to see something that could change the face of this country um at a level that we've never ever experienced is that is, is that a fair assessment you think oh absolutely i i think all uh, all anyone has to do is 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 drive through any uh, downtown district or any neighborhood district that's heavily populated by restaurants and retail and try to imagine uh, when they would reopen and what they would look like when they reopen because I can't imagine mm-hmm. what I can't imagine an answer to those two the enormous displacement my I have two sons one one bartends and one cooks and they're in their 20s and there are no jobs and there's there's not going to be any jobs and the models of success that restaurants enjoyed the busy nights, the uh, the money nights that the that the service people made, the records that the cooks set with the, you know doing uh, this number dinners, or those all seem to be in jeopardy for the short and as well as the long term. Um, I can't understand what the model is. I can't comprehend, and that's another one, one another major reason why I closed abruptly. I can't fathom what that would be. Um, it's interesting that the restaurant model that we use now um, has been with us for over 100 years. It, it, it essentially comes from France. And also the retail shop clothing uh, sales also come from France. The, the storefront window and the inventory. They, we didn't have these uh, 300 years ago or 200. We had them 100 years ago. So we've had a run of great success in retail, going to buy clothes or, mm-hmm. or, or fun things, accessories. And in restaurants, we we show up and we dine, we eat and drink, and we have fun. Those two models seem to be irreparably harmed at this point. And I don't want to I don't want to 
take sides on which one I think is more harmed, but retail seems to be really, really harmed. At least the kind of retail where you walk in and talk to somebody and buy something and walk out. Yeah. Uh, not, the on, not the online kind. Uh, the restaurant business, we, I want to go back to one thing we were talking about in the margins. Uh, seven days a week, Sunday and Monday, everybody loses money. Mm. Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, everybody prays to pay their bills. Friday and Saturday, everybody makes money. That's it. That's it. It repeats everywhere, every city, every style. It just repeats and repeats. If there are some restaurants that are busy seven nights a week, God bless them. But generally, it's lose money, break even, make money. With the make money part out because of social distancing, you're left with the lose money, break even. Right. And we don't know where we go. We don't know where we go from there. But um, I think we spoke uh, recently about this. I think that the whole inner city, especially a city like Portland, has hung its hat for the last 30 years on safe, clean, livable, usable downtown. Busy at night, people rushing with tickets, going into stores, buying dinner. And it's, it's not, it's not, it hasn't been a myth. It's been a reality. I've been living it for the last 30 years uh, working downtown. It's been real. But it's all closed now. It's closed. And which, which industries, which uh, segments of that uh, um, commerce are, are resurrectable? They might, none of them might be resurrectable. If we, and we talked about this a little bit too, if we add in commercial real estate, the, 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 the floors on, on high-rise buildings, those restaurants and those retail areas need those office workers to pass through their businesses every day too. You have to go to lunch. You have to pick up something to take home. You have to buy something for your you know, significant other or your ch- child you have to get. Without that commerce that's between office workers and restaurants and retail, where does it? Where's the energy? Where's the synergy? Where Where's the commerce? I, I I'm I'm still stuck on that issue too. This is in the hospitality restaurant industry. The age group that typically is employed in restaurants, eighteen to twenty four, is a large uh, portion of the employment pool in this industry. Yes. Um, less educated, um, or they're pursuing education. Um, and about 51% of those who were impacted the most by COVID in the restaurant industry were women. This is disproportionately impacting women and people of color and those who are pursuing education and an education that they can't afford to begin with. I mean, this is devastating, already vulnerable people working in a vulnerable industry. And I guess I, I just want to know from, from you and with your experience, what do you, how do we get out of this? Is there anything that you've seen recently that would inspire a little bit of hope for people uh, who have been impacted by this that, and we could prevent further chaos? Well, first, I would I want to, you know, state for the record that we are the most egalitarian um, industry out there because we take everyone, we take them, uh, even without experience. And really, to be successful in the restaurant business, you have to be accurate, fast, 
and motivated. Yeah. If you're those things and, and you're and you're listening and you want to improve, you're gonna you're gonna do pretty well. And like you said, a lot of a lot of our service people are in higher education. They're they're working two, three, four shifts and six hours, so they're doing twenty five hours and then they're heading to, to PCC or PSU or they're 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 building for a bigger, more substantial life based on higher education. But it's the vehicle is typically our industry. It, it, and it always has been. Same thing for immigration, for people new to a country. Uh, the pathway to, to stability has been through the restaurant industry. You know, I, I could go on and on. And that's really what I love about it the most. The issue for us, the, the riddle is, how are we going to sell food? Like, what format is food going to take? What is it going to look like? How is it going to be priced? How is it going to be packaged? We've been living in a bubble, I'm going to say the price of food generally in, in a restaurant setting has been low, given the amount of preparation and the, and the amount of cost involved. It's, we've, we've sold it low because, as you mentioned, we have a relatively low profit margin to begin with, 2 to 5%. But we never wanted to overprice. We, we always felt, my God, if I had higher prices, I'd be half empty. So value is always passed to the consumer. People can argue about this. They can say, well, I think this restaurant's expensive. It's not really. Not for, if a restaurant's expensive, it's probably buying the highest quality products and, and paying the highest wages, too. So um, it's, it's really difficult. To, we are going to be a, a, a country of, uh, of takeout, of, of doorbells ringing, of sitting in a, in a, at your dining room table, scarfing down food from a local restaurant. What people loved about restaurants is is energy and romance and ambiance, and they felt alive. They felt like a human being. They felt like they were having fun with their coworkers, or they felt like they were in love with their with their uh, you know their new interest. That's what restaurants are to me. That's why I did them all these years was to create that environment. Eating, being full, being satiated, that can be satisfied in many ways. But that's the, the hearing is the problem. We've built all these restaurants, all these dining rooms, all these bars. I, I started building bigger bars. Used to have 12 stools. Then we went to 18, then 24, then 36. Because people love sitting at a bar, having dinner, and talking to people on either side of them. So we just follow that, that you know, societal demand. Bars are outlawed now. I mean, for the time being. We don't know how long. Bars are, bars are not a thing. So... I think, I feel that there are some young people in the industry and, and some yet to come into the industry, the same way we see uh, breakthroughs in tech, things like Instagram and Twitter and Facebook, you can have your opinions about. I think there are barriers and there are breakthroughs in creativity and presentation that will allow us to finally define how we're going to eat going forward. And maybe that that buzz, that that tingle that you got in a restaurant when you were 30 with a date that night and you had gone to a concert, all these wonderful things, maybe we can't get those things back. Maybe it, we're going to be like, you know, like the Jetsons. We're going to have a, some kind of packaging and we're going to eat it and be finished. I, I hope not, but no one has really come up with even an idea, not, not even a fully uh, fleshed out plan, an idea about what it could look like, what, what it could feel like. I, I just, I'm in a loss, and that's another reason why um, that I'm not doing it any longer. Because 
I felt even with my experience and my expertise, I couldn't, I couldn't break through. And I don't, and I talk to a lot of people that are my peers and nobody knows how to break through. I mean, it's really, it's, and there's so many aspects to this. If we just keep our conversation, uh, you know, focused on this uh, symbiosis between the office workers, the, the, the ticket holders, the travelers, the, all the people that make up retail and restaurants as they merge and as they spend money, yanking out big sections leaves us with holes that are almost, it feels like they're unfillable. Who fills it? What's the group? I, I have no idea who they are. Yeah. I mean, look, we, we've seen with, you touched on retail, brick and mortar retail locations. And, you know, with the advent of the internet, we saw a decline of bookstores. I think yes, they were the first ones to, mm -hmm. to go. Mm -hmm. uh, mm -hmm. And it was a snowball effect from there. And then Amazon took off and took over. Uh, and retail stores are, are closing. It's not too uh, difficult to walk downtown uh, in any size town, whether it's a large me uh, metropolitan area or a small town uh, in central Idaho, where retail stores are, are closing. And yes. side by side are restaurants, and now they're closing as well. I, yes. I, I, I don't want to you know, feed into uh, or invest in a culture of fear yeah. when I say that, you know, the this has the potential of turning places, centralized locations into ghost towns. But I am familiar with what that looks like. Uh, you know, I'm from Detroit originally, mm -hmm. and I it's not far removed from my mind that this is possible. Because like you said, who's going to come in and fill these locations, the ones that are already gone prior to COVID and the ones that are, that are closing up shop now because of COVID? Um, and without immediate relief right now for small restaurant owners uh, and employees, this is, this is coming. I don't, I don't yes. see a way out of it. And I've been doing it yes. for 20 years. You've been doing it for yeah. over 30 years. There's a lot yeah. of experience in this conversation and I don't see a way around it. Well, we, we know that when a neighborhood is struggling, it's struggling economically. Uh, it doesn't have any there, there. We, we, uh, I mean, Portland, let's face it, is based on the Jane Jacobs theory of, of, of cities. That is, a city is best when it's well lit, well attended, safe, clean. People are going to work, they're going to the store, they're buying things, and we need less policing. We need less of the of the state apparatus to be in our lives because our, our commerce is really helping us. We're, 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 we're moving about and we're doing things. Um, restaurants and bars typically take the lead in a neighborhood uh, that's underserved changing and, and, and getting better and getting more people and getting more energy and getting more civic pride and whatnot. Um, will, will restaurants lead the comeback is, is probably a question that we should consider. Um, it doesn't feel like retail is going to lead the comeback. It doesn't feel like commercial real estate and high rises is going to lead the comeback. Restaurant people, restaurant chefs, restaurant service people, restaurant ownership, they're tenacious. They're competitive. They're risk takers. They're they're wildly idealistic in in their in in their approach to life. So I do see hope in that regard that 
that that seems to be an industry. But going back to your statistics, which are shocking, 2.4, 2.2, 2.6, and then you ramp up to you know, 8 to 11 million people in our industry. Mm-hmm. Well, the response from either city, state, or federal government on the value of the restaurant industry in leading a comeback, it, doesn't, it seems to be absent right now. I mean, it's not even, it's, I'm not aware of anything to do with that. But as far as fighting the fight at the street level, saying I'm going to put unlock the door and I'm going to start serving tomorrow and we're going to go for it, uh, I, I bet on my industry to be able to pull that off um, as opposed to some of the other people that we share the, share the, the neighborhood with. Well, without help, um, a thing we touched on earlier in the conversation, we don't have, the restaurant industry has virtually no access to capital. So there's no relationships. There's no bankers. No one ever called me and said, hey, Dave, I, it would, would uh, 2 million get, get you through this thing? I know you got an incredible track record there for the last 30 years. No one ever called me. Yeah. <laughs> and, if, and if I would have called anyone else and said, I'm, I'm in need of the, the following, I would it just wouldn't have happened. So uh, I was qualified, I think, to, to be in that situation, but no one is going to do that. Look, I, I, I apologize that I did call you, but not with an offer of $2 million, though, though if I had it, I would have given it to you. I would have taken one. I would. Yeah, yeah. Um, real, I, I do want to point out that you were talking about there, there isn't a lot of movement or any movement at the local or state level. Uh, and that's certainly been my, my impression as well. There is a couple of things that people can can look to for a little optimism there's and these kind of go hand in hand there's an organization called independent restaurant coalition and sure. uh they, can, they were founded in new york city yeah and you you can look them up online at saverestaurants.com uh, they have ways and methods for people to mobilize online and uh, in person with posters and flyers, social media content, videos, transcripts, documents. Um, but they also have a pretty good detailed breakdown of the Restaurants Act, which is not a state level thing, but in the House of Representatives, actually our representative, Earl Blumenauer, introduced uh, the Restaurant Stabilization Fund, which is calling for $120 billion in restaurant stabilization, uh, stabilization grant program uh, designed to help independent restaurants specifically. Uh, we're not talking about your, your international corporations, massive chains. We're talking about the, the independent restaurants that, that you and I have been discussing all along. Uh, this has the, the potential to keep people on their payroll uh, the 11 million or 9 million, whatever uh, it is, um, and and provide some much needed relief right now. But it's it seems like it's just a Band-Aid and it needs to be addressed on a much larger scale. But that being said, even though it was introduced in the House back in, I think, June, nothing's happened with it. They haven't taken it up for a vote. And even if they did, it's unlikely that it'll go through the Senate. It doesn't seem to be part of the conversation for uh, further federal assistance. This is something that I think 
needs some urgent attention and and could provide some economic relief for not just the employees but the uh, the small business owners as well i think uh, i think people always uh, circle back to the failure rate of restaurants and and it is high it that definitely is high but you know restaurants are a, uh and you know you've spent time in restaurants they're they're a mix of creativity good intention love and there's it's so there's so many things about restaurants to be proud of that 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 we do and have done for so many years and and, and unlike, not unlike theater every night we're we're ready to have a new group of people come in and enjoy themselves the fact that all of that is stopped abruptly uh and it's really really uh painful emotionally painful to realize that all of those good wonderful happy joyous situations are are lacking they're actually they're not the world is not functioning with the aid of those experiences mm. you, you you can't sit at a bar and have a few drinks with your friend and laugh i mean it's we're 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 um you know it's we're getting numb to the to the to the things that we're missing yeah already I, i'm happy if i'm just going about if, if a place is open i can get the food and i can leave with it and i can I can, I have it. I'm just happy with that, which is the bottom of the barrel, right? It's, it's, it's like what, but there's nothing lofty. There's nothing noble. There's nothing transcendent that we're able to, to do right now. And, um, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I don't want to sound, uh, uh, like I'm despairing, uh, because I do every once in a while, I see somebody open and I see a menu and I see a program that you're doing and I go, Ah, this is really cool. This could work. You guys are you're, you're doing it. You got it. You got something going on here. That that's very that that will continue. Those encouraging types of things will continue. And then I think, almost in a Darwinian sense, some people will have a breakthrough, and and they'll talk about it and say, "Hey, we found this guy in this city. He or this woman, and they did this, and it really is significant what they've what they've been able to accomplish." Um. I guess when prohibition went in, it, it decimated the restaurant industry in America for years and years and years. Just virtually destroyed it. And we say, well, we say, why? Well, because because everybody went in and they ate and drank. <laughs> they didn't just eat; they drank. And it, when it became illegal, eh, the the eating wasn't that big of a deal. So it took decades, actually. I, I and I've been doing some reading about it to uh, to to write itself and. Uh, I, I don't know. Does this thing take decades? Does this thing take years? This 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 dilemma that we're in. Um, one other point I like to make is, uh, I know that uh, that the guy in the White House likes to say uh, we 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 had the strongest economy in the world previous to COVID. But if we had the strongest economy, why did it tip over so fast, so amazingly fast? Why did I have uh, a set of restaurants that were full? the night before the state closes. And then the next day we were done and really had no pathway to recover from that. So restaurants are an uncapitalized uh, industry that functions more on good intentions and agreement to, to patronize a place. Hey, I like that place. I like that chef. I like that menu. We have fun. It's an agreement to agree, but it's not, it's not a deeply uh, economically functioning model. Because it 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 was just proven that it, it 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 was blown over like a feather, so fast, and is 
struggling so much to recover that it wasn't a powerful economy. Not at all. Not by any stretch of the imagination. No, I mean, it's pretty obvious now, uh, and it should have been to, to people a long time ago, that the the powerful economy that, uh, and I appreciate you not saying his name, I would have had to bleep it, um, yeah. was, was top-heavy. Yes. There was no base underneath it to support the incredible wealth that the top 1% or 1.5% have been amassing. And even during this pandemic, amassing more. They're amassing more. even more. Even more. Well, we can't even, bottom, ha- we don't even have health insurance. As the bottom falls out. Yes. It's, and it's, it accrues. It's, it's, it's staggering. Absolutely staggering. Yeah. It, it really is. I, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful. I've been like you, I've been doing this for, a really long time and every time something new comes out uh, a new policy or a new regulation in boston i remember uh when bars had to uh i think it was 2006 maybe i don't know i don't i can't remember exactly it was you can't do happy hour um, yes. and if you did happy hour, it had to be the same drink for like 10 days in a yes. row. Um, yes. and everybody decried that this is going to close our business. We're going to shut our doors. Um, mm-hmm. anytime minimum wage goes up from two thirteen dollars two thirteen an hour to two eighteen yes. an hour. Ah, oh, we're going to go bankrupt and yes. we're going to shut our doors. Um, smoking was the other sm- one when smoking was banned. All the bars yeah. are going to close. It's the end of the industry. Um, I, I do have a, I do have an encouraging story. Uh, one of my restaurants had a, had a young chef and a young sous chef. Guys were great. They were so creative and they were so happy and so energetic. And, uh, they didn't go out. They didn't, they didn't take unemployment. They didn't even go get a job. They leased a truck. They found a location, they wrote a menu and they go there every day and they kick out their thing. They're, 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 version and vision of what they were doing, but they're doing it in an, in, an, in another way. And I went to visit him recently, and I, I was so happy. The food was so good, the place. And so it's those kind of things, right? Mm-hmm. They just decided we're not going to take it. We're just going to we're going to do what we do and who we are. We're going to be real, and we're going to look for a different format, a different vehicle, a different opportunity. They're super happy, and and they're I, I wouldn't say they're making money. They're breaking even, but it's out of that type of process that I think our answers are going to come. What do you, what is your fondest memory over your, your careers? What is the one thing that you always go back to, uh, to keep your head up throughout this whole thing? Uh, you know, the, f- I, the fondest memory is, is sometimes a reoccurring memory. It's, it's walking, I would say it's walking into one of my places, uh, maybe around six thirty seven. It's the end of happy hour, the beginning of dinner. It's, uh, it's really well attended. The music is is perfect. The the plates are coming through the dining room, and everybody's happy. That that's repeated in my career. I guess I live for it. I look for it, and when I get it, when I'm there, and I'm just kind of leaning on the bar, looking around, thinking, "Wow, this is all worth it." And and that's it. That it's 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 as succinct as I can put it. It's 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 it does it for me. It's not any really awards or achievements or any of this other stuff. It's just the overall conviviality of, hey, we built a warm, inviting place. The lighting's good. The music's good. 
people are digging the food and it's full and it's got energy and it's got humanity. That is what always did it for me. And I guess knowing that I couldn't, I, I was going to be severely challenged in reproducing that in the coming months is probably the real reason why we, we shuttered definitively because I didn't see an opportunity to do that. I saw an opportunity maybe to sell beverage or cook food or, or maybe, you know, do a banquet or do functions of our, of our profession. But doing the functions of the profession were not enough for me. It had to, it had to have emotion and had to have happiness in it. And we're, we're, we're a bit a ways off from having that happiness again. Yeah, I, I think so too. It's, you know, it's hard to explain again to, to people on the outside of the industry, but we, we really do aim to create an experience and a, and a memory. It's not Absolutely. just, you know, shoving your face with food and getting you drunk. Um, yes. It really is. And you touched on it, the ambiance, the, the lighting uh, has yep. a subconscious impact on, on you. And we are very aware of what that does to you. The music, totally. the music totally. level has a subconscious impact on you. And we're very aware of what that does. Uh, the style of chairs, the positioning of the table, the positioning of the yes. silverware, all of those details that people uh, took for granted as they should, yes. they shouldn't be aware yes. of those things. We've busted our ass to make sure that all of that was creating an experience and a memory for for you, and I, I do think that we can get back to some level of that if given an opportunity and given some financial assistance that even could reshape the way this industry operates economically. Mm -hmm. There's no reason in this day and age, I don't think, that we should be operating at a two to five percent profit margin, no. we can make this a legitimate industry where people enter mm -hmm. into it and they receive paychecks and get mortgage loans and car loans and make it a career uh, like yes. they do in a lot of other countries. This might be yes. an opportunity to completely reevaluate and retool how this yes. industry operates for good. Well, it's interesting of what you just said, because uh, if we just take another country, I'll just take Italy where there's a professional class that arrives at a restaurant each day and, and, and works there for their career and has uh, health insurance and, and has uh, a pretty good life. Um, that model that the, the Italians use is, is so um, uh, inspiring to me because they open for lunch and it's one seating. People come in and have their lunch and they go back to work. For dinner, families come out. It's one seating around seven thirty-eight, and they have their table and they eat and have fun and they all walk home. Uh, it's not multiple turns and and grinding out all these numbers and all these sales that we do. So now they've been affected by COVID, obviously, uh, in the early months, much harsher than we had experienced it. But the scale of how they do the restaurant industry, the size of the restaurants, the professional class that commits to the to the to the job for their career the 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 meal periods the menu style it it almost lends itself to resurrection it allows them to come back pretty close to what they used to do ours is so frantic and so ambitious and so dictated by velocity and 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 time and production that it makes it really hard for us to come back because we can't get back into that arena that we're, we're being restricted from our American style of restaurant. So 
I mean, that's something to consider too. That um, another one, one other thing about Portland. Portland's had a a food renaissance that's been going on at least twenty years, a little longer probably, and that's because it was the last West Coast city to have affordable housing and affordable commercial real estate rents for restaurants. So you could own a small bungalow on in Southeast, and you could be a waiter downtown. And you know, you're maybe you're you're a waiter and your husband's a um, construction worker and damn it's so and then if you had a restaurant if you opened a restaurant on pick north williams belmont pick a pick a through street you might get a rent it's pretty reasonable because we hadn't arrived yet we were on our way up so i think the balance of restaurant opportunities were kind of cool they were kind of affordable and housing was kind of affordable too definitely in comparison to San Francisco and Seattle. Those, those things have changed in the last five years. They've, they've changed dramatically. But they, I think they both gave rise. If you were waiting tables in San Francisco, you said, let's go to Portland. Let's buy a house, small house. Let's continue to work in the industry. Let's put our kids in public school, and let's have a really good life. Very, very doable. Very, very much a path that many people followed. Um, and, and many other cities fed into that too. But um, we don't know now what the format's going to be. Not sure what's going to happen with with landlords and what they decide to do. Um, do they raise their rents because they took a beating? Do they say, you know what, I'm not interested in restaurants as tenants anymore. You guys almost took me down during the pandemic. I want out. I, I, it's hard to predict what's going to happen. Or Are there benevolent landlords in this town that say, this city is not worth the city. It's not the city that it used to be because it needs its restaurants. So I'm going to do my part and I'm going to lower all my rents preferentially for restaurants and and independent operators and chefs to get the the vibe back, to get the the thing going again. That would be be encouraging if if, if people would commit to that. Or um, at the state or or local level, if there was some kind of prohibition on increasing uh, rent from uh, a level pre-COVID, uh, people should be locked yeah. into the contracts yes. that they signed. And if their contracts had lapsed, then they should be able to be the first ones offered to come back at the same level, if not 20% less. If, if not less. If not less. No, no. I like it. I like I like less. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think I think everybody should renegotiate a new level of acceptable rent that will allow them to transition back to normal business. I mean, um it, it really is is a, a the the thing I'm most interested in is what how will the landlords react when the the legal restraints that they've been under are taken off? Do they prosecute certain restaurants? Do they pursue them? Do they say, you need to sell your house and give me the money for all the rent that you owe me? I mean, do they do they say, I understand what happened to you and, and, and let's just forget about these last six months. They're just gone. They're sunk costs. I don't know what they're going to do. I don't know how they're going to look at it. Um, the issue too is who's their replacement? If they, if if a landlord were to squander their good relationship, their previously good relationship with a restaurant owner, who's who's coming in the, the who's the next person in line to take that space? The, I don't know anybody that's out there. So it it, it it feels like everyone should make 
an agreement that they can both live with in order to try to continue the the relationship that was previously based on that location. Um, really hard to say what's going to happen now. Really, really hard to say. If Last question for you. If I had, and I've been trying to get uh, Representative Blumenauer on, on the show for a little while now, and he's obviously incredibly busy, um, but I have a feeling that one day soon uh, he's he's going to make an appearance. If, if there was one question that you would want to ask him directly, uh, what would that, what would that be? Uh, there needs to, uh, well, it, would it be possible to get legislation that would create a master fund uh, that restaurants could act, have access to, to, to give them a, 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 a access to capital over the next 24 to 36 months? And that I, I know we open up the Federal Reserve window, window for some major corporations who, who send their representatives to get interest-free loans. Mm-hmm. We do incredibly generous, m- monstrously large numbers for certain parts of, the, of, our, uh, of our economic uh, well-being in this country. And then nothing really for, for this. So it would be that. I mean, I, I think... Our industry should be sh- stronger. I think we could come up with more statistics. The, the the amount of people that are being employed in the industry is a powerful one, but the amount of money that's changing hands, the amount of money that's being spent in restaurants and in hotels and in hospitality, I I believe that really the state of Oregon is a is a is a service state. Without without travel, restaurants, hotels, etc., we're I don't think we're that viable economically we've moved into that realm where we're we're a place you want to come to visit and enjoy yourself and and that's not a bad thing that's just reality we don't manufacture anymore we're not cutting wood we're not fishing we're not driving cattle like we, we, these are things that made the state but they're long gone so i would say prioritizing our industry and, and having having access to capital okay. could be the biggest thing i got gotcha. Was there anything else that uh, that you wanted to speak no. to that I didn't bring up? No, I'm just happy to be able to talk about this. Uh, um, why did we get hit so fast and so hard at at the most immediate level, and why did so many employees dump out of our industry overnight? Overnight, yeah. Like this is a this is almost a, well, it's not almost. It's a catastrophic situation that. The flip side of, of the industry being competitive and creative and passionate is that we tend to accept things too and go, ah, oh, you know what? In a few months, I'll be cooking over it there. Or I'll be waiting over there, attending bar, bar over there. We all have that kind of thing too, right? Everybody said, I've seen, I've seen difficulty before. I was working at Katrina. I was in San Francisco with the earthquake. Everybody got laid off. Sure, sure, those things happen. Absolutely, this is. This is a little bigger. Oh yeah, bigger. absolutely. I was joking with my brother not too long ago about it that uh, you know I've lived in so many places now around the country, um, and the restaurant industry has allowed me to do that. Um, yes. And there's upward mobility, so it was stable. There was upward mobility even during the Great Recession uh, in 2008. I was still confident and employed that people still mm-hmm. wanted to get fed. 
They still had to eat. And if anything, people were working extra hard and working two jobs and didn't have the time to cook at home. So they were going to some restaurants, uh, affordable recession proof style restaurants. And we were fortunate enough at that time in that location uh, where I worked in, in one of those and survived it. And being the the age that I am, uh, you've got 9-11. That was ground shifting for, for a lot of people. Um, two wars. Um, the Great Recession, 2008. Uh, and now this. We've yeah. gone through yeah. so much, but we've never seen anything like this before. And yeah, there was a small part of me. I'm guilty of of thinking, mm-hmm. you know, no matter what, I have thought through every possible scenario, if not lived it, I will be fine in this industry. Um, I did not think that a global pandemic uh, or a lack of response to a global pandemic or both would would actually decimate uh, or would happen, first of all, and two, completely decimate overnight an entire industry. And my concern, I guess, as we talked about is if it does come back and if it looks a little different, the amount of time between now and then is going to be significant. And the the employees and the owners that are currently suffering right now without any answers or assistance are going to be, they might not be part of that uh, rebrand or solution. It might take that long. I, uh one of the one of the disturbing short term trends and it might be long longer is a reduction in salary meaning uh the industry was trending up manager salary chef salaries were going up hourly salaries for minimum wage kitchen workers servers were all trending up heading into 14s 15s 16s 17s and, and up benefits were trending up because of health insurance industry was was grabbing, uh, was distributing more money uh, uh, downward. But what's what I'm hearing now is that in in middle management, uh, those salaries are contracting by about 25. Wow. percent So that if you were, let's say, you were managing a restaurant and you're a middle manager, and they were you were getting paid sixty thousand. Uh, when you're looking at those jobs right now to re, to re-enter, uh, you're looking at uh, forty. So it's a, it's a it's a it's a consistent trend and everybody is rationalizing it saying, well, the, the revenue is not there. The sales are not there. We're not up to peak and everything, but the bills and the, and the reality of that person who had that skill set and was getting that compensation. Now they're being shown this new compensation, take it or leave it. Conditions are really harsh right now. You need a job. So we're, we're seeing, we're seeing the, a fundamental contraction in, in salary. That's a little disturbing if that were to continue. Um, I don't. I don't think that that's fair. I'm a really big believer. You pay your dues in this industry, and you get a resume, and you are good at what you do. You need to be paid accordingly. So saying that the uh, you know the job's there, but here's the here's the new pay. Here's the new reality. It's going to set this industry back years. Absolutely. I mean, it's it's yeah. no different than you know teachers who work for. 10, 12 years and then change their state. If they move, yes. then they have to re-enter yes. the workforce as an entry-level teacher at an entry-level salary. It's similar to, to what's going on with, with that as good, well. Good, good analogy. I agree with that. Um, 
Whew, this is a. I, I want to end. I want to end with this. I, uh, um, after I closed all the restaurants, I started getting emails. All the re all the different restaurants emails were coming in. Uh, most of them were thank you for the years in business. I really enjoyed your places, but there was a specific set of them at all the places that reminisced about a night that they were at or, or lunch or a business deal or after a wedding or a birthday party or but they were all very personal and very uh uh romantic and very touching and i, I started to cry when i when i was reading these that they were kind of mounting up and i realized that that the my worth my the sum total of my career was that a whole bunch of people had been happy and and had such great memories because i had uh built these restaurants and i had had these menus and these drink recipes and these wine lists and these and these staffs that made people happy and and so the 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 thing ended with not this other kind of feeling about it all this unfairness or bitterness it ended with this boy when we did it we did it pretty good and and it's now it's not there so it's uh certainly worse things happen to people in societies all over the world every day than's happened to us but um, this one's been pretty bad by our standards. And you can't you can't get those experiences that you gave to those people uh, when you order from Uber Eats or Postmates <laughs> or whatever the fuck it is that you're ordering from these days, people. You can't do it. It's not the same thing. You got to go to you a know, David Machado restaurant. <laughs> I've never ordered from those places, but I know that when you take the bill, which is kicked up a lot, and then you take the delivery, and, the t and when you do the whole program, it's like, well, like the food's like 90 bucks for two people. Yeah, and 45 minutes old. <laughs> yeah, who does that? <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, shit. oh, man. No. Well, let's look. Let's end it there. You are are always uh, welcome back. I think there's going to be a lot of news uh, yeah, coming out over the you. month. So let's uh, let's follow up. We'll, we'll keep in touch and, uh, and do this again. Let's get out and vote, everybody. We need to vote and we need to change our society for the better. Vote early. Get your ballot. If you are not in, in Oregon or a state that has uh, that automatically ships out or mails out your ballot, uh, go to uh, 538.com. They have a really amazing tool on there that breaks down state by state exactly what you need to know, who you need to contact, and when to get your ballot mailed to you. Some states require that you have to fill out uh, an application and you have to do it by a certain date so go to 538.com and use this tool it's absolutely seamless it's kind of cute also so it's fun to use um, but yeah definitely get out there and uh and vote we need to we need to fix this shit we'll end it there Thank you. yeah we have fun today. Thank you, you got it all right good for now i'm going down to mississippi gonna get a little part I don't like, but it's important. A lot of podcasts release new episodes on Monday, but we cover issues that impact people every day, so we release new episodes as soon as they're complete. Make sure to subscribe to get notified when new episodes are available. You can subscribe on Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Breaker, Spotify, or anywhere podcasts are available. You can even visit our website at gfnpodcast.com and subscribe to get notified before an episode is even released. 
This podcast is all about keeping the conversation going, so we want to hear from you. Be a part of the conversation by leaving us a voice message at anchor.fm backslash good dash four dash now. Nobody's going to remember that. Nobody. All right, I'll say it again. Anchor.fm backslash good dash four dash now. If you remember that, leave me a message. If you leave us a voice message, there's a good chance we'll play it on an upcoming episode and talk about it. Tell us how much you love an episode or how much you hate it and why, or ask us a question that maybe deserves more attention and we'll try to answer it. If you don't want to leave us a voice message, you can still be part of the conversation by sending a secure email on our website at gfnpodcast.com. We talk about a lot of problems in the world, but we also talk about solutions. So stay informed and stay connected and subscribe now. Yeah.